1: Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a cold, rainy fall day here in the mountains of Utah. A bit of housekeeping the Kickstarter for my new Glass Immortals novella, Montego, is now live. It tells the story of our titular character's first arrival in the capital of the Osun Empire and his early relationship with Demir and Kizzy. It's a must have for fans of In the Shadow of Lightning or a good, low key entrance into the universe. Follow the link in the show notes or on my social media to buy your copy. Now, on with the show! My guest this week is epic fantasy author Nicholas Eames. Nick is known for his breakout Kings of the Wild and its sequel The Bloody Rose. We chat about his forthcoming third book and the themes of the series, as well as our habits as writers, getting bogged down in details, leaning into the fantastical, and the hooks that bring the reader along with the ride. We also discuss eating out, our mutual love of video games, and music and the celebrity of music. Enjoy my conversation with Nicholas Eames. Hey man, so what, what games have you been
2: playing lately? I was curious about that. Oh my God, I was about to ask you the same thing. <laughs> um, well, lately I've been playing, I finished, I kind of went back and finished this old school game called Trails in the Sky. You heard of it? No, I haven't. There's a series called like basically the Trail series. There is, um, I want to say, like nine or more in the series right now, maybe more. Um, and they they're, the first three are called Trails in the Sky, first, second, and third chapter. And then there's two other ones that never got localized in North America, but are um, they, I think they just maybe did this summer. And, and then Trails of Cold Steel, which is a bit more relevant, like modern and popular. And I think there's four of them right now. And they all look like really good games, but when you look like, where should you start? Every person is like, you have to start at the beginning or there's no point. Yeah. Uh, so the early games are from, like, I want to say 2004 or something like that. Um, you know, they, they do feel pretty dated now, um, but they're good. There's a hell of a lot of reading. Uh, and the first game is often called a 40 hour prologue <laughs> because it just kind of like sets up what comes later um but it's it's pretty good for a prologue it definitely dragged at some points but i'm glad i got it done and you know eventually i'll I'll do the second one and the third one and maybe work my way over the course of my life through all these games what style of games are they um It's turn-based RPG. Okay. Like You know, yeah, Japanese RPG. Um, And then when I finished that, I went back to, I picked up, uh, I've been halfway through Xenoblade Chronicles on my Switch for a long time, so I went back to that. Um, I play just an absolute shit ton of Total War all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I've been playing a lot of that, um, Warhammer Total War, and um, also Yakuza 0 which have you ever heard of the Yakuza games at all? I
1: I think I might actually own them all, but I don't think I've ever played them.
2: <laughs> yeah. So they're like, they're not normally my cup of tea and there's something that just went right. Like I just went right past me because I, I don't not usually hugely into like gangster related stuff normally. Um, and there is seven Yakuza games and I think multiple spinoffs. Um, and then they released um, technically the seventh in the mainline series, which is called Yakuza Like a Dragon. And it starts with a whole new character, a whole new story, because the other ones are previously like a saga, with all with the one character. And then there was like a prequel game. Anyways, Yakuza Like a Dragon is brand new character, same world. And instead of like a beat-em-up action style game, it is a full-fledged JRPG style uh, with a main character who's kicked out of the Yakuza and like he's obsessed with Dragon Quest and those kind of games. Yeah. So he imagines life like that. So you meet people on the street and they're just these absurd like Dragon Quest type characters um, and you play it turn-based combat. And it's just it's so, it was an unbelievably good game and it kind of got me into the series, which is so unique and so wacky and so unbelievably dramatic. Huh. so I went back, and then, you know, whenever I look up a, a list of, like, what is the greatest Yakuza game, Like a Dragon is almost always number two, and this Yakuza Zero, which is the prequel game, uh, is, is pretty much always number one, so I picked it up, and, and I'm playing through it now, and it's, it is really good. It's not normally my kind of style, because it's like, you know, the fighting is, like, not button mashing, because there's a bit more complexity to it than that, but, uh, yeah. but the storylines are just so good, and the quests are so good, and yeah, it's just, it is wacky as hell, like, you've never seen anything like it i don't think unless you've played these games oh that's cool they're truly truly unique yeah
1: i, I feel like i missed the boat on jrpgs oh really because i, I had noticed that you is really seem to enjoy jrpgs and i i have a lot of friends who played a lot of them and i i feel like for a lot of people kind of my age like the um like the gateway drug was like final fantasy yeah. and i've never played a final fantasy game like i and i'm i'm not 100% sure why maybe it's cuz i was more of a computer game kid than i was a console yeah. kid yeah. but like I, I it does feel like kind of like a uh, a little bit of like a hole in my gaming
2: yeah it's something you'd like i mean they they are really good and there's something to be said they have a great quality to them that like western rpgs don't necessarily have uh, and western rpgs have A quality to them that the Japanese ones I don't think have. The Western ones tend to have a bit more grounded stories and characters. Um, Obviously, they appeal. Like the main characters are meant to appeal to like Western audiences because like every Final Fantasy main character looks like they've got the haircut of to us it looks like a fifty year old woman named Blanche. Yeah. You know, but it's on like a young teenage boy. Yeah. I don't know. They're all. They're all. But in in the end of every Japanese RPG, they're just really epic compared to Western ones because you always like you're a band of misfit adventurers that eventually fight. God, you know, yeah. so there's no effing around, and in, in Western RPGs, you're a bit, bit more kind of like grounded usually. Right, right. They both have their strengths, but I'm also like you, I think a huge like strategy computer tactical game lover as well
1: that that definitely was like where my love of gaming came from like as a kid i because i remember watching my brothers play uh dune 2 and warcraft orcs and humans yeah and I'd, i'd watch them play and then i i probably spent a good year or two of my very young childhood only getting to watch them and i finally started kind of getting computer time myself right yeah. and and playing those games and so yeah strategy computer games strategy uh rts the old school rts
2: yeah i think age of empires was my first like computer game obsession yeah That's when i didn't oh. have my own computer so i would like make friends with people <laughs> you know that had computers in age of empires and be like cool i can, can i sleep over Oh, you're going to sleep? Cool, I'll just jump on here for the next eight hours.
1: Oh man, I, uh, I've, I definitely had a friend um, you know, one of my best friends his family, they had a family computer that was a good way better than the computers that we had in my house and his parents always bought them the games to play and I always, like looking back I feel slightly embarrassed because I remember like I, we hung out all the time, I was there constantly and whenever I got even five seconds alone like I would I would bolt to their computer and play something on it. Yeah. Some game that they had that I didn't
2: have and
1: you know, it to to an embarrassing quality.
2: No, that's fair. I mean I think to those of us who like, you know, we realize now how much we love video games and what a huge inspiration and part of our lives they are you know those are the early signs of like you're gonna love this thing and when you have such limited access to it you know at a time when really everyone had pretty limited access to it compared to nowadays Um, yeah but yeah what about like Baldur's gate did you ever play those games at all i i
1: played one of the Baldur's gates yeah through and i don't even remember which one it was it was for i want to say playstation 2 maybe okay and uh Like, I I have a very distinctive memory of there being a, uh, we had a a long winter break because of uh, a big snowstorm. And I went over to a friend's house and we just ordered pizza almost every single day and played this game. And I don't, I don't remember which one it was, but, uh, but I never got into like, I wasn't like a religious, like, like I play all of the Boulders Gate games, you know all that stuff. Yeah, um, it was just a game he happened to have, and I we played it together.
2: But was it like a hack and slash kind of game, or was it like top down isometric tactical RPG?
1: It was a hack and slash. It was okay. like a top down hack and slash. Like
2: yeah, that would I would I mean. Obviously some people may disagree but I would not technically consider that a Baldur's Gate game. Really? That, yeah, that's more like a kind of a money money making offshoot almost. <clears throat> Baldur's Gate Baldur's Gate like pretty much, no it didn't like invent the the whole top-down isometric RPG, but it certainly, you know, perfected it at that time. Uh, so all the games now, like Torment, I don't know if you've heard of that one.
1: I, I've heard of it. I haven't played it. Yeah. I I remember um, Neverwinter Nights was one that I remember trying to get into, and it was it went a little over my head. I don't even remember what age I would have been at the time. Yeah, but it was like a little too uh, involved for kind of like where I was at gaming wise. Yeah.
2: Well,
1: do you play Total War at all? Um, I have played a lot of Total War, not for a few years now, but let's see. I started off with. Probably the original Rome. Um, tons and tons of hours into that one. I played Rome 2. I played Empires. I played um, Medieval 1 and 2. Uh, yeah, so the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> I've, I think I've only played a few hours of... Uh, um, of the Warhammer one, it just because I'm not like a Warhammer like junkie, like yeah. And so when I started playing it, I was like, "Ah, eh, this is a little too much for me to get into." Mm-hmm. Like to learn the lore and learn how every unit like is different because you kind of have to, you know, when you're when you're playing a game that like. When you're playing like Rome, like uh, Rome Total War or even um, more better for me, uh, Medieval Total War. Yeah. Like every unit, I had a reasonably good understanding of what that unit would do without even having to look at their stats.
2: Yeah. You're like, I know what skirmishers do.
1: Right. You know yeah. what? You know what everybody does. And so when there's that like extra barrier of like, oh, I'm going to have to learn every single unit for a very complicated like war game. Yeah. Yeah. Fair, fair. <laughs> and- that
2: anymore. I mean, in Warhammer, because now they're they're three games deep, they're meant to be a trilogy, and they've got it so that now all three games are combined into one. Really? So there's ultimately, uh, yeah, you have to own all three games for it to to work, but all three games in one, so it's about 86 separate like, leaders that you choose from each their own faction like and they belong to the larger faction like say there's you know six door factions whatnot yeah um but almost every one of them play differently than the other <laughs> um the same units but they all have a faction like a thing that plays differently uh it is so good i mean obviously i'm a huge fan of historical ones as well yeah but you know i've always just wanted even playing like rome i was like oh what would a fantasy you know, war or total war game be like, and I don't know anything about Warhammer before I, outside of this game myself, but yeah, it turns out a fantasy a total war is pretty goddamn good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. Yeah. Do you um ever, do you ever as, as a writer, do you ever like look at a game and kind of go through that? Like, go through that kind of like a daydream process of like, Oh man, I could totally work on a game. I could, I could develop something that would be playable and fun for people. I mean, and then, you know, at, le- at least if you're me and then you realize, Oh, there's so much more going on in a game game development that I don't have any knowledge of, <laughs> but I, I, I always wonder if other writers have that, like, have that thing you know once every month or so where they're like i should work
2: on a game oh definitely i mean i definitely i also think like sometimes you know there's like this technology out now on steam and on like all the consoles where you can like kind of develop your own 8-bit game yeah uh, or pixelated game and i would like i always think oh i wonder if I i have a friend who would be into the you know the actual making of it enough could we make a good one you know and Something like that, and and that's something probably something I would love to do. But uh, yeah, I do think about video game writing a lot because it's something, to be honest, that I would actually love to do as a career as well. Um, I was fortunate enough right before COVID to work on a game for a little bit. Um, I got asked by this company to be like a kind of a freelance writer and uh, and did a little bit of it. So it was a a pretty cool uh, experience to just learn you know the ropes a bit more about like you know structuring narrative within um, you know gameplay elements. Um, yeah and it was yeah it was it was a lot it was pretty interesting and i'm about halfway through your podcast uh with the uh, video game writer, which is a really really informative one as well so well
1: well and i'm'cause uh, i i i am fascinated by that kind of thing, right because like like you and I do long form like ver- the longest form of
2: writing right longest of forms
1: yeah and and I'm fascinated by like the kind of the multifaceted nature of video game writing because you have to be able to write. You have to be able to write things that are that work in within the context of a game, obviously, but you also have to work with all these other people mm-hmm. to develop the game and make it a functional thing. And I, I don't know, I find that stupidly interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved it, and the thing is, I really did find that I liked working with other people collaboratively. Yeah, but kind of in hindsight, I wonder. I did, I did like not in necessarily a bad way, but I did butt heads with the game game kind of director a few times just because. I'm maybe that's why I was let go when COVID hit. Um, <laughs> but just when it came to basic story elements, I remember, and I mean, it could be in the game. I don't kind of want to mention it right now, but it could be in the game still. But he wanted to put a an like, eternal day into the game, kind of to make it easier on the developers so they wouldn't have to do a whole day night cycle. Yeah. And I was like, Okay, okay, I can work with this. It's like, so, you know, we're going to change, we have to change the floor, the fauna, I have to change a lot about it. And he's like, no, 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 just, it's just going to be eternal day. And I'm like, well, no, because it would be like a desert planet. You can't, you don't have the same plants, you don't have taverns, you don't have nightlife. Like, you're not thinking this through. And so I just don't think they liked that sort of, uh, you know, maybe attention to detail. And to be looking back I was like maybe I was too you know aggressive about it and too like I stuck to my guns too much about it cuz I was like no you just can't it doesn't work.
1: Well when you know when we do like when when I did like writing classes and stuff like that I remember one of the you know the advice that I got a lot was you know take try to make as much of the world of your fantasy world, try to make it as much unique as you can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like Brandon Sanderson does this, obviously Brandon's really yeah. known for this, where he'll totally change the flora and fauna of the world. And there's a, like, he alters things quite a lot. Yeah. And I, I've always kind of, I've always stuck to a kind of a mentality of if you change too much and you y- your your readers are going to have a much harder time getting into it Mm -hmm. and and so you you need like you need like kind of the capital like the the um kind of the the fandom capital to be able to get away with that you need to either you have to have the skill or the capital yeah and you know somebody like brandon clearly has both right yeah um but uh but it's also i think it's I, I sometimes find myself overthinking those things yeah. of of going down that domino train of, oh, okay, if you change this one thing, you know, if you don't have a day-night cycle, yeah. then how does everything change? And you go down the dominoes, and and then you spend forever, you know, world building, and you never actually get the stupid thing done, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm also one of those people who, I mean, I've spent my entire life trying to get non-fantasy readers to read fantasy books. Yeah. Um, You know, and watch fantasy movies, everything like that. And so I know when I set out to write my, like even Kings of the Wild, which is very unabashedly fantasy and contains like, you know, every fantasy element I could possibly think of in there, but I didn't put them in there at the beginning. I wanted to make sure those first few chapters uh, you could kind of lure someone in before you hit them over the head with the fantasy hammer as it were. Um, so you know I've got very short, easy pr- easy to pronounce names uh, when a fantasy element is brought up like someone mentions a Cyclops and it's immediately almost made into a joke um, and when it comes to using like monsters, although I do you know put a bit of weird ones and made up some in there, I tried to use things like you know like a goblin because my mom you know doesn't read books with goblins in it, but she knows what a goblin yeah. is. You know, basically, she kind of gets it. Whereas if I had made up a creature and called it a Svigvart, you know, or whatever, she would just be, she'd read it and she'd bounce right off and go, no, I'm out. Where she'll goblin is like, as long as she can see it and move on and the story keeps moving, um, you know, it kind of works. And I think that happens for a lot of readers. And I think, you know, keep trying to keep a few, like you said, like, or like just basic staples in there so that the rest of it, you know, can, you know, you can do whatever you want after that.
1: Well, and I, I think that, like, I think you did it really well with kings of the wild because it because you do have that kind of vibe of like a D campaign right mm-hmm. which is usually said in a criticizing way but i am not meaning that way at all
2: <laughs> no i don't i don't take it that way yeah.
1: because the way that you 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 have to you almost kind of have to hang your hat on it right you have to say yeah. this is a this is an adventure novel literally this is all adventure and you're going full in on the fantasy elements and everything. But you did it with that that whole kind of, um, with the whole rock star vibe, mm-hmm. which I think is what so many people really loved about it, was this, yeah. was being able to connect with that rock star vibe. And and because of that vibe, you were able to much easier hang your hat on the fantasy elements. Yeah, exactly. And I, I really, I like that in terms of, because I, I sometimes myself, I I. I f- i am constantly on top of myself with my writing to remain grounded Mm -hmm. to a point at which maybe i stay too grounded where you know where i could go super weird in some places and then i don't um and i but i i like the i like the way you kind of set up your world to give yourself permission to get as strange and as fun and out there as possible and uh, and I really I really respect that as someone who struggles to do that kind of thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, different strokes for different folks. Like like you know, sometimes people are in the mood for something a bit more grounded. Like I personally like books that have Svigvalds in them and weird names for goblins. You know, I'm into it because I'm a like a fantasy reader. So I certainly don't begrudge you know writers that do that. And reading your books, like as a huge history buff, it feels like you're reading fantastical history sometimes. You know, where someone's not going to get that from mine. So, um, you know, having a, a vast array of stuff out there, but it just means that sometime in some other series, you can go full fantasy. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, give yourself permission to let fly. It definitely is like it is nice having a world where I can use literally anything. You know, I,
1: I um I, I was I was curious about because I know that you are also a huge fan of anime, mm-hmm. um, and and anime is one of those things that I personally have a very mixed uh, relationship with. There, yeah, yeah. There, there are some anime that I find literally some of the best media out there. I think is so cool. Yeah. Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood is like a masterpiece in my mind.
2: Truly, yeah.
1: Um, but I feel like I I don't have the patience, or maybe the sense of humor, um, or or even maybe the cultural context for like ninety nine percent of anime. Um, and I, I was curious as someone who really loves anime, how, how you think that, that the kind of, uh, the kind of oddness that you find in, in that kind of TV, how does that affect what you're writing? Uh,
2: well, I mean, the thing about someone asked me once, you know, why I liked anime and I'm just like, I think it, because it can be anything like every show is so different from. From another one and even if they have the same theme like you know person dies and gets taken to a fantasy world once you're in there every show is just so weird and different and there's there's anime shows about everything like the animes i love are you know there's ones that are like cooking and the climaxes are like these cooking battles and you know there are always things that before you you told me before i got into it that i'd be into a cooking anime i would never have believed you um but this one is just it's just stupidly good and i was just i was riveted by it or a volleyball one with teenage like High school volleyball is like one of the best animes I've ever seen. Haiku, um, but I understand it is kind of a hard medium to get into, especially if someone's not familiar with it. And it's almost just like kind of like fantasy books itself. It's like when you you're, if you're trying to get someone into it, you know, it's like if someone says I'm trying to like recommend fantasy books, and they just recommend the most fantasy of all books to a non fantasy reader, you're just gonna shoot yourself in the foot and turn them off. So with anime, you kind of got to look at the person and be like, okay, what do you like? And I also heard a funny saying once that each anime show has its own amount of anime what's called anime bullshit that you have to just suffer in order to enjoy it yeah and and like you said once you watch more of it there is like a sense of humor that's very specifically japanese it's it's you know a little bit goofy it's kind of very endearing very often it's perverted um and so you (laughs) kind of have to just you know put up with it like like every every anime watcher and their dog is watching that show chainsaw man right now which is like a huge show and it's like, it's really good and it's beautifully animated and there's some really sentimental parts in it. But the main character is obsessed with touching a girl's chest and both me and my brother are just like, Oh, can this please stop? Can can we get this arc moving so that he can stop being like this? But you just kind of got to put up with it. If you're going to enjoy the rest of it.
1: Well, I'm, I'm kind of, um I'm kind of surprised that you, that, that things that are um things that are, have kind of gone mainstream, still get away with that side of the skeeviness side of anime
2: yeah yeah and you're like they're like they're teenage you know it's a teenage boy so you gotta okay 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 you know like i guess i was a bit you know weird at that age too um but yeah at the same time ultimately there's just there's just a lot of epic moments and they've got a lot of the great animes have a ton of humor, a ton of like kind of sadness and just yeah, epic scenes in them. So I think I kind of enjoy that. It's very, very inspiring to me when it comes to Roll.
1: Hey Page Break listeners. Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer, or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me! I like writing my action scenes as if they are playing as an anime in my head. That's a great, I, yeah. I, I have occasionally been accused because this is one place where I don't ever stay grounded yeah. is that I have occasionally been accused of my fight scenes, not being realistic. And I, <laughs> I mean, that's a fantasy novel, man. I, like if I've got a guy carving through the middle of an army, it's not realistic. I, I yeah. want it to feel really epic in that way that like, like, cause that is what does get me into like a really good anime is with like an action anime having those scenes those fight scenes that feel very fluid and very like you just watch it and you're like holy crap that is cool yeah i I really do love that
2: yeah and i think that i think i that's something i really enjoy about your action scenes and i can see that now that you say it um and i think that's part of like like you said like say i've built a world that i can get away with all kinds of like goofy fantasy stuff but Building a system, say, like Brandon Sanderson has, where people can be doing like jumping off walls and running on ceilings, like. If you go to the trouble to build yourself that world, then you should get to enjoy the benefits of writing amazing, awesome scenes. And if you don't, then you get to write, you know, very realistic battle scenes where people are weighed down by their armor, <laughs> you know? I always think of that. I've got a few friends that write, you know, like Christian Cameron, who writes very historical fantasy, you know, and his, his armor is always so realistic. People, you know, would take, no one just rolls across the tabletop in full plate, you know? yeah. Um, whereas... They do all the time in my work.
1: I I definitely run into that. Like this is like something I do when I'm, when I'm drafting the first draft of, of most of my books is that I will, I will like start off, I'll start off trying to be more grounded, Mm -hmm. um, because it's my, it's my predilection. That's where I always kind of drift towards. And there will be a moment at which I finally say to myself, I just snap my fingers beside my head enough times and say, okay, Brian. I don't need to spend a half a page describing, you know, this guy's, you know, the weight of this guy's sword, right? Yeah, Like, I can just have him be doing cool things. And you know what? Readers are going to like that. And honestly, I, as the writer, will will enjoy writing it more than I would if I'm trying to be more realistic.
2: Yeah, I find if, I mean, obviously, if an author like, once again, Christian Cameron, like, knows their stuff, Then describing it comes so easily to them. Whereas people who don't know as much about it, like maybe you or I, we kind of struggle with it and maybe overdo it. You know, like when you find someone who doesn't know anything about ships trying to write a book that takes place on a ship, you're like, I get it. You researched ships.
1: (laughs) I I avoid ships so, so strongly with my books because, oh my gosh, that's just, it is, it's like an alien world. When you try to, when you start trying to research it a little bit, you're like,
2: yeah. Oh, it's like there's a whole new language I have to learn. Like, oh yeah, they are best avoided unless you really want to dig deep and go into it. Like, obviously Scott Lynch with his second book, you know, like did a lot of research. You get it, yeah. And it and it pays off when someone does. And then you get someone like R.J. Barker who writes the Bone Chips. and he literally says, I think in the in an excerpt at the beginning of the book, I know nothing about ships don't come at me and, <laughs> and he just doesn't care, you know, and just right. makes it up and his ships are made of like dragon bones. So you kind of get away with stuff like that.
1: Right. And there, there is kind of like a, a thing where you have to, you have to come up with some sort of acknowledgement to yourself to be able to, to realize, look, there are places where I am not an expert or I'm not, or I'm not good at something and I don't have to be mm-hmm. like, it's not my job to be. And and if I want to write something that's set on a ship and I, I'm not I don't know all the vocabulary, then oh, well. Yeah. And, and if you as the author are OK with that and and you have sort of a um, there's almost like a narrative presence that if you have the proper narrative presence where you're where you're not quite winking at the audience, <laughs> yeah. you're like just coming shy of winking at the audience there's this narrative presence that you, that allows you to get away with lots of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe that or, or how I would even coach someone in creating something like that. But, but it's totally a thing though, that you, if you, if you get across the right sort of uh, the right sort of sense of humor or something to your audience, you can get away with not knowing jack
0: shit.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, I think every fantasy reader or writer, sorry, um, when they're writing their world, talking about like a journey, they think, "Oh, someone's gonna, someone's gonna, you know, look at my map if I make a map and go, oh, they took this long to get this place." I remember I was so reluctant to make map a map for my book, and I love maps. I drew maps all the time. I love when a fantasy book has maps, but I was like, "Please don't make me do a map because I was just winging it. A thousand miles across this forest, I have no idea. How, you know, I was just making it up." And so they made me do a map and it worked out, you know, fine in the end, but no one really calls on it. Like ultimately, especially readers nowadays, you know, with the kind of media that everyone consumes, I just don't think they care as much anymore. They just want to have fun and enjoy it. And so when it comes to something like distances or like, how does this work exactly? Um, as long as it's cool, I think you can get away with a lot.
1: I, uh, I'm I'm on my I'm working on my eighth epic fantasy, and I am still way too obsessed with geographic <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, precision. Yeah, like it it drives me up the wall. Yeah, and I, I I'll, I'll, I'll agonize over my own maps, saying, "Okay, yeah." So if. This, this is about, this is roughly this many miles that'll take five days or so to get between those things. So I need to have a five day gap between these two scenes. And the fact is, is that I, like you said, I really don't need to, yeah. like, I, I need to have it, I need to have it feel kind of right for the audience but it doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. But me as an author, you know, that, that's one of those weird things that really gets under my skin. And it doesn't when I'm reading, just when
2: I'm writing. Yeah, I do the same thing. I do the same thing. And it's kind of like once you, with the first book of a series, you, you know, saying this is someone who only has one series, you, you can wing it because you don't have a map yet. Mm-hmm. Or no one's seen it. But yeah, it's once that first book comes out, then you're stuck. Then you got to start <laughs> looking at your map Um you know and and start yeah i definitely had to do that with my second book i was like oh, okay how long's going to take to get to here um which is actually another great reason why i have i have uh, like skyships ships airships in my book um because i can just use them to if i need to get somewhere fast just bam sky ships. yeah there that, that works. works you know i don't even need to research how long a horse takes cuz i just made these ships up so <laughs> And some of them go different speeds, so no one can be like, "Well, you know, a horse only trots this far in a day," you know. So right,
1: right, and it's it is funny because because readers readers don't notice until they do. You know, it's the it's the thing of um it, it's the thing with like, and I'm referencing the TV show because we have it you know ostensibly completed, um, but we have it's the Game of Thrones thing mm-hmm. where there was so much work put in at the very beginning to talk about vast distances. Yeah. And then in the final season, everybody's just teleporting back and forth across those spaces. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and suddenly the watcher, un- yeah. the, the viewer knew what was going on, suddenly said, oh, wait a second, they shouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, And it's when you put so much work into something at the very beginning, but then throw that all out later, that's when you kind of screw yourself.
2: You know they they definitely flush it down the toilet. Yeah, it's like we're north of the wall, we're south of the wall, we're in King's Landing. Whereas in the first season, it's like two episode journey to King's Landing. Yeah, yeah,
1: so, yeah. And it is it is funny though, because as you work through, um, as you work through a series, and you are trying to focus on different things as you move through subsequent books, suddenly the thing that you thought were was incredibly important that you get across to the reader. In the first book, suddenly it doesn't seem that important to you anymore. Yeah, like your priorities as a writer change as you go along. I mean, like, have you found that?
2: Um, well, my books all kind of have different timelines as well. So you know, there's like a six-year gap between the first and second, and a fourteen-year gap between the second and third. So. I almost feel as if I have to kind of reestablish the rules every time I start again, just because the world has changed relatively drastically in between each of these books. So yeah, I feel like I'm starting a whole new series each book.
1: That's actually really interesting. Cause I, I do the opposite. My books, my, cause I've so far, you know, I'm, I'm halfway through, almost halfway through, um, my third trilogy. And, and I've always regarded my trilogies at least Mm -hmm. as single books, you know, yeah. Just really big books divided yeah. into three spots, and so they they move continuously from the end of book one to book two, you know, like that. And every time I start a new book, I think to myself, "Well, maybe I should do a time jump. Maybe you know, I can I can fiddle with some things. I can maybe I should change things up." And then I I always end up landing on no. Let's go almost immediately from the end of the last book. Yeah. And and I'm curious if that ever if you ever agonize over that or if that's something that that you feels very natural to have like a long time jump and to kind of reset the world almost.
2: Well, it is for these books in particular only because um, they're each kind of inspired by a separate era of music. Um, so with my first book being kind of 70s like rock and folk music, and the second book being kind of the 80s, you know, pop punk metal that kind of stuff and then the third book moves into the 90s so it's very kind of based on like grunge and hip-hop and that kind of that kind of um music and not only the music itself but the where the music was coming from so like in the 70s kind of like in the first book there's a very there was a sense of like wonderment and adventure and rambling like you know they had these 17 minute songs uh, that you would never have nowadays you know or at least on the commercial commercial music. Um, and although they, you know, these bands were getting big, they were they were just getting big. Like they had come from very small things, like small beginnings, and had no clue that they were going to get so huge. Uh, and then with the second book, kind of like the '80s, these bands they knew there was a formula to get huge, and they tried to they mimicked what came before, but did it bigger, louder, brasher. Painted their faces, screamed, spiked their hair colored the hair did all that kind of stuff did crazy drugs you know did the stuff you hear you hear these legendary stories about like you know the drummer from led zeppelin or somewhere driving his motorcycle through the hotel so they'd be like i'm gonna do that every night um and so that kind of thing and that kind of attitude and outlook inspires the the story itself and also just the kind of setting that the world is in and then moving into the 90s the music that I'm looking at, like grunge, like hip hop, um, was made by people that were kind of like pissed off, like you rage against the machine, like with the establishment or with their, you know, how they were living and treated by society. So you've got to make a society that reflects that, and that 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 tone works in. So um, yeah, that has kind of made each book's tone quite a bit different, and necessitates the time jump. I think.
1: Yeah. That, that's that's really, really cool. Yeah,
2: yeah. And in the end, I think the world, I mean, at least my, my plan is to have the world go through an arc like a character would and to see a world, how it would change over the course of two or three decades and generations. You know? Yeah,
1: I, I really like that. I think that's, a, that's, that's quite a neat kind of approach. Like the... I mean like I, I had mentioned already before it was that, that that kind of the kind of rock and roll vibe that you give the, your books that 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 kind of the basis in music it's you know we um you know when we write and we've we've alluded to this already but when we write we have to write these fantasy worlds with a way for the reader like a hook for the reader to feel like it's not totally alien mm-hmm. like they want to recognize something in that world even if it's a super fantasy world. And, and I like that, that the, the kind of the rock and roll kind of aspect that you're dealing with that gives a hook that isn't actually like it's, it's stated,
2: but not stated like true. Yeah. It goes right over some people's heads, believe it or not. Right. It's, 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 and- Bludgeons other people over the head
1: right and, and it's so it's it's kind of it's a little more i think it's a little bit more subtle it's a little more thematic than it is like a, a solid part of the narrative mm-hmm. and i i don't know i really like that as a way to hook the reader and bring them in and 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 give them something to hang on to that they recognize while they're going on this crazy journey
2: yeah and i think i mean obviously it's a. Uh... And it was, has been referred to before by agents, you know, I submitted to you as like a gimmick, um, because it kind of is, you know, but at the same time, I, I really think it works really well within the context of a fantasy world, like, you know, mercenary bands getting paid to fight monsters, why wouldn't you be famous? You'd be so famous if you did that. And why wouldn't you get a manager to organize these, you know, things for you and rather than do it yourself so and then why wouldn't when you know when you'd cleared out all the goblin caves and saved all the towns and things were getting like short and glory was in short supply why wouldn't you just oh we'll just make arenas like why would we go into this poison monster infested forest we could just tour from town to town sleep in an awesome inn throw a party go to the arena fight the monsters be famous so i feel like it's a pretty good evolution and i think with the third book you know it kind of moves on like how that would Concept evolves. Um, I think it works really well within the context of a fantasy world. So although it did 100% begin as a gimmick, um, it's definitely evolved into something I think works pretty cohesively as a as a you know fantasy world structure.
1: Well, and it's it's funny because gimmick is you know it's a word that you know has negative connotations, but mm-hmm. but you you have to have a selling point when you're taking a book to an agent or an editor. Yeah, like you have to have some. You have to have a hook for them. Yeah, you know you have to have the hook that that brings the reader along for the ride. But you also have to have the really easy two sentence elevator pitch that Mm -hmm. the, that the person that's going to pay you for the book hears that and says, Oh yeah, I can get behind that.
2: Yeah. And I think, I mean, both of us really in a way, like there wasn't really, I don't think something quite like maybe Kings of the wild when it like, obviously like rock and roll fantasy to me, it hadn't really existed before. And I'm sure when you went you were like Flintlock fantasy, they're like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and if I I want to say now it seems so commonplace, but it really isn't because there's like not that many people that do it. Um, And yet it's just so it's such a ripe genre. Yeah. And you were like a pioneer of that. Well, and that's
1: that's a weird thing. Like I have this like I have a very strange like thing where I'm um, God. it would be super like. It'd be super arrogant for me to say, like, I'm king of a subgenre or something like that. But there is, like, a way, there is, like, a small way in which I am, like, I, yeah, like, I am, I'm, I'm at the front of the wave for a small sh- subgenre
2: in epic fantasy. Um, and, yeah, yeah, I think if anyone writing, like, fantasy in the future has to, would have to admit that, and I don't want to, like, float your boat too much here, but, like, that you kicked open the door for. <laughs> unlock fantasy you definitely did you and Django Wexler like for sure did it
1: right but but I mean there's there were people that also came out after me like Django Django came out just a few months after me and he yeah. and we didn't we had never heard of each other we didn't collaborate yeah. we didn't we both had vaguely similar ideas for a pitch for a cool world At at the same time, and and then more people did the same kind of they they kind of clung on to that vague like you know subgenre. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. It is it is kind of cool to be. It's kind of like at the forefront of that you know like but also it gives you kind of this like weird like old man feel now <laughs> that i've been in there for 10 years where yep, i'm like yep. oh, when in my day when i was writing the fantasies um I, I definitely get a little bit of that in the back of my brain
2: <laughs> well as you you've, i think you've earned it yeah <laughs> i don't know about that and, and to me i didn't uh i didn't think i mean at the funny funnily enough i hadn't read Terry Pratchett. Before I wrote my book, I've read tons of them now. And granted, you can't even say Terry Pratchett necessarily humorous fantasy because although it is, he's all he's pretty much his own his own genre. Like there's nobody that writes like him. Period. But as far as like fantasy that really tried to be funny, yeah, I didn't I didn't actually know any that existed. I knew that Scott Lynch had made me laugh and Joe McCrombie made me laugh. But I knew that in every other book, when the characters tells a joke and everyone's laughing, I'm just like straight face going, okay, that was a joke. Sure, right. I'll, I'll trust you, I guess. <laughs> Um, but I'd never really laughed out loud at books until those authors. Um, so yeah, I definitely felt that I was kind of taking a risk writing a book that was so that tried to be funny, whether it's funny or not obviously everyone's has a different opinion. Um, but I, and I think I got kind of pushback trying to when I was trying to get published to tone it down to make it like a Abercrombie light you know um, and thankfully I got you know an editor and agent that let me do it
1: well and that that doesn't surprise me at all you know with when i was in school when i was taking classes uh, that that focused on fantasy and science fiction mm-hmm. one of the things they told you was there are a couple of people who have successfully done comedy sci-fi and fantasy mm-hmm. And if you're not one of those people, don't do it. Yeah, It's never going to work. Yeah, And the, they were very blunt about that. Yeah. Just like, you know, agents don't want it. Editors don't want it. And, and so it is it, like, you should feel really good about the fact that you were able to push that through, you know, not just through an agent and an editor, but, but actually to acquire an audience because yeah. comedy is one of those really weird spaces Where where it's it's so it's so subjective that it's hard to land on an on a broader audience totally for especially for something like like what you do with. Um, with this adventure fantasy yeah. as the backdrop. Yeah.
2: I mean, there's lots of people out there that call it, you know, you'll get the comments that say that it's, it's like 14-year-old boy humor, um, which is fair, but it's also 40-year-old boy humor. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, I, I do feel really lucky. I think the audience actually was there. They just, they. I don't, who knows? There, there was books before mine that started out funnier, and got, you know, pared down, because to be honest, like I say, I, I, I was lucky enough to have two offers at the same time, and one of them was keep it as it is, and one of them was change it, and thankfully, but if the only the one that said change it came in, I probably would have taken it, because I've been trying to be a writer for like 20 years, so, you know, I would have jumped at that, and it would have been a vastly different book, and very, very likely would have been lost amidst the sea of other books just like it, so I, I feel fortunate that I found that my editor and agent were, you know, saw something in it that, you know, just took a took a chance for sure. I think took a chance and it worked out. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, and and that's and that's something that, that that's one of those kind of rough spaces with with talking about agents and editors because we can we can talk all we want about the fact that there are probably lots of books that get missed. Like you mentioned, maybe there were lots of funny things that. That ended up getting pared down or didn't find success and things like that. Yeah. But um, like, I, like I, I do always try to remember that like, agent senators are just people trying to do a job. Like almost with a Ouija board, you like 100%. figuring out what a broad audience will actually enjoy. How do you do that?
2: Yeah. And they've got to I mean, and publishing gets accused of saying like trying to repeat successes, but you've got to. Like you want to and same with an author tries to repeat success as well. Oh yeah. Um, you know, you try to make your second book like your first book. You try to make your second series appear to the appeal to the people who liked your first. So you definitely can't blame them for not wanting to take crazy risks, especially, you know, on the in publishing's precarious situation these days so yeah i absolutely you know cannot blame anyone for any of the choices they make ultimately
1: i i saw a review for my latest book in the shadow of lightning and it's a whole new series and i saw a review that was basically like this felt a little too much like powder mage and in my brain i just went yeah man i've got a mortgage to pay like of course it feels a bit like powder mage
2: yeah yeah, I've got. I mean, I've got an idea for my next series, and guess what? It's going to feel a little bit like Kings of the Wild. It's going to be, you know, quite a bit different, <laughs> but it's gonna just because a that's your voice that you find you find your voice and you want to work within it and you found success within it, uh, and then b you want to make the people that let that have supported you thus far happy. You know. Yeah,
1: yeah, and and that's you know, and I and I've talked to some writers who jump around a lot. You know, my like my good friend Dan Wells, like no two of his books are the same. He loves jumping genres. He loves changing things up constantly. Mm -hmm. And and I, I have a lot of respect for that. But I also feel like there's like I feel like the anxiety it would cause me trying to jump to a new audience every single time. Yeah. Like, oh, man, that would kill me.
2: Yeah, I think it just depends on I mean. I'm guessing I mean you and I are both relatively slow writers. Um, one of us is a lot slower than the other, but uh, you know, if you're a fast writer, I think you've got a bit more leeway there because you can throw more stuff at the wall and see what sticks and see what you like. And and you know, if something fails, you're already two books written. You've already got two more books written, ready to go. So yeah. you know, you can just try something else. Whereas you know, how with, with the length I write, it's like I better write something that appeals to my readers because you know. <laughs>
1: Right, because that took me a year and a half yeah. or whatever. You know? yeah. Like, yeah, like it's a lot of time you put into a book. Yeah. Now, so do are, are you a full time author now? Yes. How long have you been going full time?
2: Slash video game player. Um. um...
1: <laughs> oh man, that is too true. Let's
2: not let's not talk about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Slash stair router of Windows and cat feeder. <laughs> um. No, I was fortunate enough. I, I it took me a while. Like I didn't have a big advance and. Um, but Kings of the Wild did pretty good right out of the gate. I th- I would say it took me about a little over two years after Kings of the Wild before I was able to go full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked in restaurants all the time while I was writing my book, and worked in restaurants right up until um, Buddy Rose was out. Um, when
1: you say worked in restaurants, what did you do? I was a server.
2: Yeah, yeah, serving tables, and uh, and to be honest, I really, really miss it. Really, a lot. Oh yeah, I just loved it. I thought it was it's a, it is the perfect job for someone who. Uh, has other stuff going on like obviously like actors are famously a lot of servers um but just because it's so flexible you work so little hours for so much money comparatively yeah you know around you know what other people work and how much other money other people make um it's just a great job and to someone who maybe it's just because i've gotten older and because i've spent more time writing that i'm more of an introvert now but it it made me you go out and you have to be on every single day, you know? And, and I do like, I am a relatively social person, but it was a great way to stay social. And, and just in general, I was one of those, one of those freaks that didn't really care about how much money I made all the time. Yeah. Uh, I loved giving people incredible nights. And thankfully I worked at some restaurants that allowed me to do that. And I just, I loved it and I miss it. I go out to dine like all the time. So I, I still get it, but I can be a little you know, it's like, oh, this is taking a long time to come, so I can be a little nitpicky, but also forgiving,
0: right?
1: Now, I I do wonder that because I've no. I, I've worked some crap jobs, but I've never done uh, I've never done wait staff. Mm-hmm. and I I'm curious how that changes your perspective towards um, going out to eat at, at you know at any number of different types of restaurants, right? Like, yeah. w- where do you do you find yourself? picking apart the person that's bringing you food or do you find yourself kind of a little bit more relaxed and kind of like oh
2: yeah this guy they'll they'll get it out they're, yeah. they're doing their job i let them do their job uh, that's an excellent question i think i'm i think i like to think i'm on the like more forgiving side of it because i mean just in general and everything in life whether it's a video game or a tv show i want to like it a, a dining experience a book i want to like it and I will make excuses for it for quite some time before I'm like, okay, this, this is not good. Um, let's call it Wheel of Time Syndrome. <laughs> uh, Wheel of Time TV Show Syndrome. And, but going out, I, uh, I tend to have really good times. And unless something like, the only thing that really like, pisses me off is like, extremely long waits between things. And then the server kind of showing up and being like, Hey, like and acting as if you're not sitting there beside a skeleton that used to be your girlfriend, you know? Yeah. Um, but otherwise I, I it like, kind of like when you read a book and you're like, you know, if, say if you find spell a spelling mistake and you go, as a writer, you're like, well, I know how these can be missed, you know, by so many people. And the same thing goes for in a restaurant. If someone's like t something's taking a long time, I can look around and be like, Oh, well, it's because they just got triple sat with this many people and everyone's ordering drinks at the same time. And you know, so I can, yeah, usually kind of break things down and know why things are happening. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's I, I find I find when I know when I know how the sausage is made
2: mm-hmm.
1: in a particular profession, I, I, I find that I am much more forgiving about it because I know the points of failure, right? Like I know, I know what can be, what can be the person's fault that's standing in front of me, yeah. but also what can be the fault of people that I don't even see. Yeah. And, and so that you're, you're kind of able to, like you said, you make excuses. You kind of like, you're yeah, yeah. more forgiving and you're kind of like, yeah, as long as you're not having a horrible day yourself already. Right.
2: Yeah. Like, I mean, And there's a server here in town where I live and I've had him a couple times at this restaurant. He's like, he is not great at his job, but he's so enthusiastic and so endearing. And he's trying so goddamn hard that he yeah. is 20% every time. Like it doesn't matter that he sucks at it because he's trying hard. And that's ultimately what really matters. Like to me, at least. You know?
1: Yeah, I definitely, uh, definitely. If I like someone. Like I I will forgive them so many things Mm -hmm. like, you know, and it, and it doesn't even have to be like, like them on an intellectual level, you know, if they've got a ready smile, you know, if they look me in the eye, if they're apologetic, there's like, and that applies not just to like going to a restaurant, but just in life in general, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's so many things that, that a person can do that makes them, that makes them really easy to forgive for, for, for most everything.
2: Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's but when it comes to like, you know, talking about it in a writing context too, it's like, if I know more, the more I know about an author, very often, the more I'll enjoy their books because, yeah. you know, you just kind of see their perspective on things and you enjoy it. Like I love reading my friends' books um, just because it, you feel like you're spending time with them in some small way or even authors I've never met. Um, you know, if you listen to them on your podcast, for instance, like it just gives you so much insight. Like I've never met Pierce Brown, but my God, I feel a deep kinship with him, because we like almost the same things, you know? Um, We're pretty much twins, obviously. (laughs) Um, Just except for his full head of hair and ruggish good looks. Um, (laughs) But, you know, besides that, yeah. So I I do like knowing more about an author. And, yeah, I find it, you know, you you enjoy their art more, to me at least. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. Yeah,
1: it is interesting because I, I I I do run into some people that kind of have that um, that belief in kind of the death of the author, right? Like you ignore that person, mm-hmm. um, and and you ignore the fact they exist completely. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't think about their politics or their habits or their likes or dislikes. Um, but I don't know. I've always I've always kind of erred on that side of. I kind of want to know about this person and if I if I find out that they are a scumbag I probably will enjoy what they do <laughs> yeah, less. Yeah, 100%. You know, I I there's there's like this school of thought. My wife and I talk about this a lot. There's this school of thought that that is almost like you had to to create really deep art, you kind of have to be this horrible tortured person. And I I super don't believe in that. <laughs> No, definitely,
2: me neither. Like,
1: like life experience is definitely important. I like very much so.
2: Yeah, no, but I know what you mean. It's it's like say if you have kids, you're gonna bring a different perspective to everything that you write, and you could definitely say it's gonna make you better at say I don't know writing those kind of scenes or writing from that kind of perspective. Um, I sure don't want kids, so no, thank you. But uh, you know, it just depends on. Yeah, there's every, I mean, ultimately, everything that happens to you in life will.
1: Yeah, yeah, but but you know, like. I guess I guess my thought is that art art isn't an excuse to be a douchebag, right? Like it's not an excuse to be a, to treat people poorly, yeah. or you know, lash out, or or do huge amounts of drugs, or whatever it is your poison is, right? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. some people see it as an excuse, right?
2: Yeah. No, I agree, and I think I mean you've met I've met all kinds of authors, obviously, but the ones that I at least um, would try to emulate the most are the, there's so many authors out there like Kevin Hearn, um, Robin Hobb. You know, who just have these these they're not like they're not angsty, they're not anxious, they got none of you know, they're not like on Twitter bemoaning anything. Yeah. They just enjoy their life. And yeah, and I think you can kind of see that reflected in their work. And it's not always to say it's better than someone who's not enjoying their life, but uh, you know, it's it's possible, obviously, to be just an absolute gem of a human being and write what Robin Hobb writes. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, and Robin, you know, you know, we all follow her on Twitter and she just she's so delightful she's just like the nicest she's like epic fantasy's grandma and she like she she writes and she tends to her farm yeah and she's just super great like like that's like definitely you know she and she writes interesting deep crazy things sometimes very dark things yeah and but also she you know feeds the geese you know, right? <laughs> like,
2: yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, writing is different than, say, rock and roll that way, where a lot of you know <laughs> people in rock and roll music felt they had to obliterate themselves in order to, uh, you know, create art.
1: I, I watched um, a few years back. I watched this uh, Tom Petty documentary. Um, I just forgot the name of it, but it's like four hours long. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, I think it might be running down a dream. But the thing that I came away from that with was this realization that some of these, even these incredibly world famous rock stars are really just normal people who happened to get big. Mm -hmm. And like, and Tom Petty very much comes across from that because he is very clearly a genius and very clearly a professional, like good at what he does on like a really deep level. But he also like... He was a guy who just, he wanted to make music, and he wanted his friends to make music. And I thought that, that's just so dang cool. I, I, I highly recommend that documentary.
2: Yeah, I'll check it out. I mean, yeah, I mean, ultimately, music today, obviously, there's a lot more manufactured stuff. That's not always the case, but there are obviously definitely artists that start, you know, very small and get really huge. I think back then, in in Tom Petty's day and age, there wasn't too much precedent for huge, like there was the Beatles and Elvis. Um, so yeah pretty much everyone like so like someone like the Rolling Stones you know and and when I, I was doing research for Kings of the Wild I read a lot of these biographies and they were those their first albums they were making them in like um like empty houses so that the dramas would reverberate a certain way and like very, you know, had they had to be really like do this re- re- rudimentary sound engineering that these days you just wouldn't do. You just, yeah. you know, do it in the studio. Um, so yeah, they definitely definitely to like, yeah, start from the grassroots kind of way. And yeah, there's something really cool about that.
1: Did you, um did you watch that uh, massive Beatles documentary that came out? No, I don't think I didn't. Um, that, it's like eight hours long. It's like a big thing. It was all restored by yeah. Peter Jackson, I think.
2: Yes, yeah, I remember it was pretty big. Yeah,
1: but that one was interesting. I, I I really liked it, and and part of what I really liked about it was the fact that you had these guys that were it was their final album. They were they were the biggest the biggest rock stars in the world, and they were still talking about like trying to make sounds like like you were mentioning like yeah. like echoing various things. Like they're like moving around equipment. They're banging on walls. They're they're like just making this shit up. And they're the biggest people in the world, right? And I, I absolutely love that.
2: Yeah, well, that's cool. Maybe I'll check it out one of these days. The,
1: the, the, there's a humanizing element to seeing how that kind of thing is done, even at the very highest levels that I really love. So I, um, I've, I've been keeping it for quite a long time. And I, uh, I, I like to finish up every one of these episodes by asking a question to everyone, which is, what's the last thing that you ate that blew your
2: mind? Well, as, uh, as you know, I'm a longtime Page Break listener, so I was ready for this this answer. Um, and I'm actually going to go pretty far back for this one only because, like I said, I do eat quite a bit. And there's been a lot of amazing meals. But if we're talking mind-blowing, um, you and I share a Spanish publisher, I believe. Oh, probably. In yeah. And Yeah, uh, And I was fortunate enough to get to go there last November for the 42 Festival. And when we were there, my girlfriend and I just kind of wandered around. Um, Barcelona and found uh, just you know a hole in the wall restaurant and ate a like very typically like European meal and that it took like three and a half hours to you know get through everything uh, really took our time drank a lot of wine and at the end we ordered a tiramisu and I've always been like I love chocolate I love coffee too but I love chocolate there's a chocolate cake I'm ordering that um, and I was just like so so about tiramisu and we tried this tiramisu and it was the best thing I've ever tasted in my whole life oh. and I was like this is the pinnacle I didn't realize that tiramisu was the pinnacle of all food and I will probably spend the rest of my life chasing that exact taste because I've had you know like eight since then and none have come come quite close to it so a tiramisu in a hole in the wall restaurant in Barcelona was the last thing that blew my mind.
1: Oh that that sounds awesome. Like when you I I, I don't know I think I've reached a point cuz when you're younger and you start learning about fancy desserts like everything everything's kind of exciting and like holy crap you know this is going to be amazing but like i I feel like i reached the point right around when i hit 30 Mm
2: -hmm.
1: where desserts even like when i got like a really fancy one they all tended to taste kind of the same and so when i get something that's truly unique that like elevates what i'm eating Oh my gosh, like an elevated dessert is just, it just, it does, it imprints itself on your brain.
2: And boy, did this ever, like, and I, I mean, I, like I said, go to a lot of restaurants, I make a lot of food too. And just that one was mind blowing. It was so good.
1: Ah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I really love that. That was author Nicholas Eames. Thanks again to Nick for coming on to chat. You can find links to Nick's social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. As a quick reminder, jump onto the Kickstarter to support my new Glass Immortals novella. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website, or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for a bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jay Sunnell, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, and Talon for their backing on Patreon.